Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. How about now? All right. Good morning, everyone. If you could make your way to your seats. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, verse 35 is where we're going to start this morning. Today and next week in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus' authority on full display. This week, we're going to see his authority and control over nature and over demons. And next week, we're going to see his authority and control over sickness and death. And what Mark is doing in his gospel is he is progressively revealing, he's building blocks on top of one another to just show us how great and how awesome and how powerful God is. And that God is Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Carlos Segovia is going to read to us from God's Word. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crown, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep in the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and, ha- and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he had wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down to the sheep rushed down to the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what has happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. 
And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you here this morning in need of hearing from you. We need you to speak to us, to help us make sense of the lives that we are called to live and to help us to know who you are. We thank you that your, your word reveals to us the magnificence of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has power and authority over all things. We thank you that you are merciful and you are kind to us, and you have drawn us to yourself through the work of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that as we listen to your word preached here this morning, Lord, as you speak to us, that we would have ears to hear, and that our hearts would be soft to receive the instruction that you have for us. We want to live for the praise of your glory, and we want you to be glorified here today. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this first story of the storm hits pretty close to us. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And a couple of weeks ago, I shared just briefly a little bit of the trial that we've been going through as a family. Our daughter had a heart transplant that then didn't go well, and she was on life support for a couple of days. And then she had a stroke, and then after that, then her lungs didn't work. And so it's been quite the ordeal. And we've been dealing with a lot of trials along the way, circumstances that are beyond our control. And these are obvious ones. They're pretty big ones out there. But as we went through this major storm, we realized that there were lots of storms along the way. It wasn't just one thing. And I think that's how it works in our lives. Yes, we sometimes have these big, momentous events in our lives, but we have trials and storms pretty much on a regular basis, day by day, life doesn't work the way that we want. We're not in as much control as we think we are. And so we get frustrated and we get concerned and we get angry sometimes and we respond in ways that are not pleasing to the Lord. You see, life is like this. We face things that are out of our control all the time. And I've been really helped by a book by Jerry Bridges. It's called Trusting God, and there's a picture of the book there. It's an oldie but a goodie, but I've learned so much about that because in the book, he explains that in this fallen world, we regularly experience things that are out of our control, and he says sometimes there's little storms, and a good example would be like when you're waiting on hold for somebody at the hospital to pick up so you can set an appointment. You ever had to do that when you just wait on hold, and they play the really bad music, and then sometimes it kind of skips and all that stuff, and you're just sitting there, and it's, let's be honest, it's really annoying. Okay, so that's, that's like a little baby storm, right? Okay? But then, as I just mentioned, sometimes you go through severe storms. Maybe it's a big health issue, like the one that we've been going through. Or maybe it's the death of a loved one or a broken marriage. Things that involve deep pain, much sorrow things that are really hard to grapple with because the magnitude of the storm is just so great, we can feel overwhelmed by them. 
And these storms come in all the varieties in between. Storms that involve things like loneliness, wanting to be in a relationship, things that make us sad and become a real trial for us. The reality is, even though we think we are in control of a lot of our life, we think we can determine where we're going to go and what we're going to do, the reality is in God's economy and in God's big picture, no, we are actually not in control. There's only one who's in control, and that's God himself. But we like to think we're in control. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we can handle everything that's going on. We also have an adversary, the devil, who does not want us to trust in God. He tells us lies about God. He tells us that we don't need God in the midst of our trials and our struggles. Or he subtly starts to impugn the strength and the power of God by saying, you know, I'm not really sure he can help you in this. And sometimes, even worse, he'll say, you know, God is able to help, but he just doesn't want to help you. And we have that personal setting in that says, you know, yeah, maybe God doesn't really want to help me. And so we look for other forms of help in the midst of our storms. We sometimes look inward to ourselves, and we say, okay, I'm just going to try harder to control what's going on. And if you've ever been around a controlling person, you know what's going on. They're trusting in themselves and not God. They're trying to determine every step that not only they take, but that you take and that you take and that you take. They are trying to orchestrate the whole thing. And in a sense, it's that picture of us trying to be the little mini God, right? We want to be in control. This is our world. You're just living in it. But that's not the truth. The truth is it's God's world, and we're living in his world, not ours. So sometimes we look in and we try harder to fix things, but the result is that's pretty exhausting, isn't it? And it's, let's be honest, it's not very fruitful most of the time. We actually fracture a lot of relationships. We sometimes do more harm than good. But sometimes we look elsewhere. We don't just look inward. We look out to get help from, from others. And yet that can be very unsatisfying because here's something that you learn in life. And it doesn't mean all the time, but the reality is because you and I are not perfect, when we try to help each other, we'll never help each other perfectly. And a way to remember this is that people will always disappoint you. There'll always be some degree where they're not gonna do it exactly the right way all the way through. Now that's no knock on us. We're to try to help each other. We're to carry one another's burdens. And there is much grace that comes as a community of God's people help each other. But if we trust in other people to bring us ultimate peace, ultimate satisfaction, to be in ultimate control, we're putting our hope in the wrong place. We're trusting in something that won't deliver. So we can look in, we can look out, and sometimes when things are just out of control, we numb ourselves. We go to drink or to drugs or to pornography or some other distraction that just says, I'm just not going to deal with how out of control things are. And so as I provide this introduction, I think all of us can see our need 
to find out, can we really trust Jesus? Is he really who he says he is? And will he be able to deliver and bring order and control and peace to the storms of our lives? So if I asked you the question, if you knew that Jesus is sovereignly in control of all things, and he cares for you deeply at all times, would you trust him to help you? The main point of this message is Jesus is in control of all things, and he shows mercy to those who are in distress. And so we have two stories here this morning. I'm going to try to work both of them in. I'm going to highlight two different features of Jesus' character that are revealed in these two stories. But there's a lot of overlap in the stories as well, and you'll see that as we go through. But the first story is the storm story. After a long day of preaching from the shore, verse 35 says, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And so he was up in the Sea of Galilee, and they're going from one side to the other. Now, he was with a bunch of seamen, okay, and they had a lot of boats. There were several boats with them. And so there's a picture of a boat that was most likely what they would have been riding in. About 25 feet long, 8 feet wide. About 15 people could stay in one of those boats. And so there's a little armada going across the Sea of Galilee over to the other side. But he's with these people who are very familiar with the sea. These, these were fishermen, many of them, Right? But they knew in the Sea of Galilee, which is about 700 feet below sea level, that violent wind drafts come down into the Sea of Galilee. And sudden storms are not atypical. But this time, they encountered a deadly storm. Verse 37 says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. In other words, they're on a sinking ship. This thing is going down. And they're in the boat. But here comes the real twist to the story. And this is the part that we want to pay attention to. Look at verse 38. It says, He, but he, meaning Jesus, was in the stern or the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. So here you have this great sea storm, enough that it's filling up the boat, the boat is sinking, and what's Jesus doing? Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. That's a real, that's a real problem, isn't it? Because we need Jesus to save us in that moment, right? And so we get these eyewitness details, probably from Peter talking to Mark about the location, about the cushion that Jesus was resting on. But this raging storm is going on, and the the men of the sea, they were afraid, and Jesus is asleep. So what do we make of this story? Why was Jesus asleep in the back of the boat? Well, first of all, Jesus was a man like you and me. He was tired, it said. And so he went and he rested. This is the humanity of Jesus on display. But secondly, Jesus was also in control of the situation. He didn't have to get all frazzled like we do. Like when the ship starts sinking, we're, we start bailing out the water and doing all kinds of stuff, trying to take control of the situation. Jesus is like, I got this. And he's just asleep in the boat, resting and in control. You see, the creator is not afraid of the creation. 
The problem is the disciples were afraid of dying. But instead of coming and saying, Jesus, can we just be with you? Like, can we just huddle around you and be in your presence in the midst of all this? No, they approach him a little bit differently, actually in a way that sometimes we can approach God. You see, they were afraid and scared and frustrated and desperate. And instead of coming to Jesus and asking just to be in his presence, they said, hey, Jesus, don't you care about us? Don't you care that we're perishing? Well, the climax of the story and the part that reveals that Jesus is in control comes in verse 39. Despite the flawed approach of the disciples coming to Jesus, and we don't ever perfectly come to Jesus, but Jesus is gracious and he's merciful. He humbly and powerfully rescues them. Verse 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, and he said, peace, be still. That's all he does. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. In a few simple words, Jesus displays his divine power and authority over nature. So how does this help us understand who Jesus is? Well, when we think about somebody who can calm the seas and make the winds be still, like, that's kind of amazing. And the people in the boat had the same reaction. They were like, wow, this is something amazing. And that's the desired effect. When we are in the presence of God's power and God's might, and when we see it on display, we are to be awed by that encounter. We see God through Jesus Christ, who is God, displaying his power in a way that reminds us of the very first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. There are some parallels here. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth, but how did he do it? He did it through his word. He spoke, and these things came into existence. So there is amazing power in the word of God, but we also see that there was power when Jesus said, be still. Peace. See, we underestimate Jesus. We think he has to always do things the way that we want him to do it to fix things. But so many times the answer with Jesus is quite simple. He just says something and it happens. What he's looking for in those moments is for not, not for us to tell him how he needs to be God, but for us to sit and be in awe of who he is as God. There's another connection here in Psalm 107. I encourage you to read it sometime. It's a it's a word picture. There are four different word pictures of human problems being solved by divine intervention. And in verses 23 to 29, it's a description of another stormy sea and some people really in trouble. And in verses 28 and 29, which are on the screen here, it says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. So anybody who was familiar with Psalm 107, who then hears the story of Jesus calming the sea and the winds, would have said, hey, wait a minute, there's a connection here. This isn't just some good teacher. This isn't some miracle worker. We are actually in the presence of God himself. And that's what Mark's connection is meant to be for us. Jesus 
has unmatched authority and control over everything because he's God. He speaks, and whatever needs to happen, he will make happen. This is what Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 alludes to. It says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So friends, this is the kind of help that we need when the storms of life come our way, whether they're little storms or whether they're big storms or storms that are in between. And in the presence of such power, the disciples' response is appropriate. It says, and they were filled with great fear. But this time, it wasn't just a fear of dying. No, this was a fear that's more associated with awe and reverence. They were in God's presence by being in that boat with Jesus. And they saw very clearly that he has control over nature. And so rhetorically, they asked the right question and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And from an argument from the greater to the lesser, the reality is, if Jesus can do that, well, then he can do everything else. If he can take nature on just by himself with a couple of words, like, what's going on in our lives that he wouldn't be able to come and intervene and control and help us with? You know, in the situation with our daughter, Demetra, we saw the Lord's miraculous display of power in many ways. Day by day, we cried out to the Lord, and day by day, you cried out to the Lord on our behalf. And the Lord heard our prayers. And one of the first prayers that God answered was, after the surgery, and we were told that first night that the heart uh, transplant hadn't worked, for the next two days, she was on life support. And at the end of the second day, uh, it was just so encouraging um, it was towards the end of the day, and one of the doctors came up, and he had a little bounce in his step, and we're like, oh, I wonder what this means. And I don't have any reason to believe that this man is a man of faith at all, but he came, and he was just so excited, and he looked at us, and he says, there has been a miraculous turn of events. That little heart started working. And that man spoke things that he did not know of, I don't think. But as we were hearing him use the word miraculous, oh, yeah, we know we know what was going on. We knew who to attribute the glory to and what just happened. God just had mercy on our daughter. And he's got the power to do it. And yes, we love our doctors, we love our nurses, but we love our God even more. He's the one who brings peace. He's the one who calms us in the midst of the storm, no matter what storm you're going through. But the reality is storms just don't go away. You know what happened the next morning? We were all happy we came in the next morning, and then we found out she was having a stroke as we were walking into the room. So she needed to go then and have brain surgery. But it was the same God the day before that was going to watch over us the next day, this miraculous God who watches over his people and shows them mercy day by day. Oh, friends, yes, it was a perilous time, but there was a peace in our hearts because we were dwelling with the one who brings us peace. The one who can tell the wind and the seas to be still. And I think he spoke that word into our hearts as well. And so even in the midst of an outward storm, there was inward calm because we knew that we were walking with the Lord. At Nancy Whitaker's funeral yesterday, her brother Cliff was sharing just 
briefly about just the trials that we can go through in life. He says, I just don't know how people make it without God. Cliff, I'm just so glad you said that because I'm like, I totally agree with that. Finally, I said that to ourselves over and over. How do we make it through this life without God? But here's a little lesson that the Lord was showing Bonnie and I in the midst of all this. About a month into our trials, we, you know, have these moments where we're trusting God. They're having all these big events going on. And sort of simultaneously as we were walking to the hospital one day, we just started to have this discussion of why don't we have such great faith every day? Why does it require something dramatic going on for us to go and run to the Lord? And yet God's Word tells us that we're supposed to keep in step with the Spirit. We're going to walk with Him all the time. And, and quite honestly, as I look back at the trial and what we've gone through and what God's teaching us, I think He's teaching us to be more humbly dependent on Him in all things, not just the big things. And I pass that along to you because I think we're all in that boat sometimes. The big storm comes and we want God. But what about all the little things that go on and the in-between things that go on? Are we trusting him the same way? Well, I think that's what he's calling us to. So when we face the trials and the storms of life, when things big or small come our way, I love the verse in Hebrews 4.16 that says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Which brings us to our second story. Jesus is merciful to those in distress. It's a story of a demon-possessed man. It's probably the most detailed story of possession and exorcism in the Bible. And I don't have time to unpack all the details, but the devil is real. We have an enemy who speaks lies to us, an enemy who wants to detract us from following God. He wants to get us off target. He wants to impugn God's motives. He wants us to question whether God is powerful. Now, Every time something big or bad happens in our lives, it doesn't mean that somebody was demon-possessed in the middle of it. And there are things where the enemy and the devil are much more at work around the world in more outward ways than what we experience here. So I don't want to minimize that. But I can level the playing field by saying, look, we all know that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle, aren't we? And we have an adversary who lies to us. He wants to get us off the mark. And when he takes hold of a situation, it's powerful. We can't defeat him on his own. Let, let me read to you again the depiction of this man who's possessed. Starting in chapter 5, verse 3, he says, he lived among the tombs. Okay, so he's living around all the dead people that were there. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The effects of the demons on this man's life were amazing and tremendous in terms of how sad they are. This man became an outcast, tormented, out of control, reckless, unrestrained, harming himself. And there's every indication that this is going on all day long. Can you think of any other story in the Bible that depicts somebody who is in such misery and distress? I mean, this is a really graphic picture of how bad life can be for somebody. 
What makes this story so interesting is that these demons are really distorting the image of God in this man. We're all created in the image of God, but this man is distorting the image of God. He's becoming less and less human the way that these demons are interacting with him. And not only does Satan, when he gets involved in our lives, he distorts our image of God, but you know, sin does the same thing. When we choose to live apart from God and to live our ways, over time, we will become less and less like him, even though we were made in his image. You see, we talk a lot of times about sanctification, how we're being transformed into the image of God, and that's a work of the Spirit. But the opposite side of the coin is true. When you don't live with God and you walk by yourself and not with the Spirit, you will become less and less like him. And so this picture, I think, can be applied to all of us. Not that people are all dealing with being demon-possessed, but think about the ways that sin has affected your life and how it dehumanizes you. People who struggle with pornography, the way it dehumanizes the way that you view other people made in the image of God. People who struggle with anger, how they tear down and hurt and harm people, if they're Christians, for whom Christ died. You see, we, we roll things back when we live according to our own ways. And so sin does the same thing. When we choose to sin, the image of God in us grows dimmer and dimmer. And it's because of sin that we can see parts of ourselves in this depiction. And so what happens in our story? Well, the demons confront Jesus. They say to Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. You see, the demons, it's really interesting, and Justin had mentioned this uh, a few weeks ago, the demons don't wonder who Jesus is. You know, the title of this message, Who Then Is This Jesus? Well, they knew, and they do know. That's not the issue for them. They just don't want to follow him. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And a legion could be up to 6,000 soldiers. So this was going to be a big problem. And the story picks up intensity in verses 12 and 13 with the, the pigs nearby. It says that they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And here's Jesus' part. So he gave them permission. Nothing huge, nothing real fancy. Jesus is just on the spot, and he gives the right word and the right instructions, and he says, that's what's going to happen. And the unclean spirits came out, of the, came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So what do we learn from this story? Well, again, like the first story, Jesus has authority, not just over nature, but he has authority over demons. Okay, Jesus is powerful. Jesus has authority over the demons, but there's something else that also gets revealed here. This story also reveals the mercy of Jesus and the lengths he will go to save people. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, defines mercy as God's goodness to those in mercy and distress. And we see a display of his mercy with this demon-possessed man, don't we? As I said, can you think of anybody who had it worse off than this guy? alienated from his family. Where were his friends? This guy's just off alone, up in the tombs, hurting himself. 
It's a really difficult situation. One that cries out for mercy. A mercy that only God can provide ultimate healing for. You see, the location of where all this took place was not in the Jewish territory, but it was across the sea over in the Gentile territory. According to Mosaic law, these were unclean people. And these animals were unclean pigs. And Jesus is interacting with a man living among the remains of the dead, unclean. The man is demon-possessed, unclean, unclean, unclean. Jesus had no business being around there. And so why was he there? Because he wanted to save this man's life. Jesus broke down all the barriers. Jesus broke down everything that could have been taboo in order to come and to be with this man and to restore the image of God in him. This isn't the only miraculous story that we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark. Yes, Jesus has authority. He has authority over the wind and the seas. He has authority over the demons. But friends, there's even one greater enemy that we have. One greater problem, I should say, that we have. And that is the problem of our sin and the separation it causes us with God. You see, because we sin against God, we deserve God's wrath. God's wrath is defined by John Stott as his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. And so you and I are under the wrath of God because of our sin, our choosing to not go his way, to rebel against God, to become his enemies. And God is holy and just, and we deserve the wrath that is upon us. And yet Jesus had a greater mission than just healing people here and there. No, he came to be the Savior of the world. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He came to save his people from their sins. And so later on in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to hear how Jesus, who was fully man, lived in perfect obedience to the Father, was ultimately betrayed, rejected, humiliated, and crucified on a cross, not for anything that he had done, but for all the things that you and I have done to show our rebellion against God. You see, friends, Jesus is merciful. He wasn't just looking out for himself. No, he lived his life in obedience to the Father and with a great display of love and mercy and grace towards you and me. See, friends, as we delve into these stories and as we connect to the storyline of the Bible, we see that Jesus is not only powerful, but Jesus is also merciful. There are two responses of mercy in this story, aren't there? You know, the townspeople, they heard about all this great stuff that had just happened, and they come out and they see the guy in his right mind and everything's going on, and you would think they would be like, great, Jesus, could you just stay here for a while? Could you stay and be here with us? Can we just be with you now? That's not how the story goes, does it? Now these people looked at the economic loss that they just encountered, all these pigs running over the hill and dying, and they said, you know, on second thought, how about you take a hike? How about you leave? 
How about you move on? Friends, I did that for so long in my relationship with God. I would see God do amazing things around me. And in my hard heart, I would just say, hey, move on. Move on. Because I didn't want to relinquish control of my own life. But what I've come to learn is that when Jesus is in control of your life, well, that's the way, the truth, and the life. Because that's who he is. And that's who he is to each and every one of us who call upon his name. This is why he was talking to the disciples in that first story. He's like, why are you guys so afraid? Why, why is there no belief? He wants us to believe in him and to trust him. The second response is the one that we're to pay attention to. The demon-possessed man, well, he shows great faith. It says in verse 18, it says, as he, meaning Jesus, was getting into the boat, heading back across the sea, the man who had been demon-possessed with demons, or who had been possessed with demons, begged him that he might be with him. He just wanted to be with Jesus because he believed in him and he trusted him. You know, in drawing this to a close, we, we don't always get what we want when we come to Jesus. This man begged to be with Jesus and to come with him, but the response in verse 19 is kind of interesting, isn't it? Jesus did not permit him to follow him. Why? Because he had a mission for this person. A mission to go and be a missionary to the Gentiles. First one recorded in the Bible. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so, friends, there's two points of application. One, as Jesus invades your life and you encounter him, the first response is, put your faith and trust in him. He will never disappoint you. He will always be with you. And he is powerful enough to save you from whatever situation you're in. And he will show his mercy and kindness to you whenever you need it. And in whatever way helps you to trust him even more. The second thing is, those of us who've been blessed with this great news in our lives... Well, he has a calling for us. He says, I want you to go and tell others. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That doesn't sound like hard evangelism, does it? Just telling other people what the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. That's the first step in so many of these conversations to helping people see the goodness and the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us from all of our trials and our troubles, and the most important one, our separation from God. And so we tell people about this glorious Jesus Christ. And we lead them to him so that they too can see his marvelous works and give him praise and glory. So friends, do you believe Jesus will have mercy on you if you come to him in all your trials? And are you willing to be obedient to Jesus' call on your life to go and tell other people about him? Not a real complicated application, but very significant. Do we trust him? And will we tell people all of his glory?